I'm Andrew. And I'm Spencer. And you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with architecture critic Sarah Goldhagen, who has written about buildings, cities, and landscapes for The New Republic, Art in America, and The New York Times, among other publications. Her latest book, Welcome to Your World, How the Built Environment Shapes Our Lives, explores the cognitive and emotional benefits of well-built spaces and places. With so many of us sheltering in place right now, it's great to connect with an expert on the subject of space, particularly in relationship to how it makes us feel. Let's get her on the line. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. It's nice to be here, Spencer. How are you doing? Good, good. I wanted to start with how you've been spending your time. Have you found the quarantine productive? Well, you know, I'm I'm a writer and I work from home, so I'm really not doing that much different from what I usually do, which is get up in the morning and write and read and exercise and and watch junky TV in the evening. So, um, <laughs> but I gather that this is novel for the rest of the world. And so I'm interested in that. <laughs> now, of course, I'm staying much closer to home and not traveling and going around. I mean, there's lots of cultural activities and so on that I usually do. So I am much more just in my neighborhood, which I think mm. is the way everybody is and kind of interesting. What uh, junky TV have you been watching? Oh God, do I really have to confess? <laughs> if we if we can get into Tiger King, we're totally open to it. No, no, my son, he's all over it. <laughs> Let's see, billions. Now we're watching Fauda, which I like. Okay. But yeah, I'm pretty much an equal opportunity TV junkie. So. <laughs> I think it's great that you're sitting in front of this beautiful piece of art because my next question relates to the cognitive nature of our relationship to space, which also is you know, a subject you know a lot about, you've written a book about. I wanted to kind of get your take on, you know, given now that we're spending so much time indoors, how is it that space makes us feel certain ways? Can you talk about the sort of science behind how space makes us feel? Sure. I guess the first step is to even take a step back from that question and say, Mm. does space have any effect on how we feel or think or whatever? And, And the answer, I mean, most people know that, yes, it has some, particularly if you go into really dramatic spaces. I mean, let's say you walk into a Gothic cathedral, everybody knows that that's a feeling that you get that's different from the feeling you had before you walked in there. What science has begun to show us is that it's not just true for really dramatic moments in the environment that have this kind of effect on us. Mm -hmm. Built environment, because we all spend time mainly in the built environment, is always having an effect on us. Positive, negative, but Mm -hmm. never, ever neutral. And there are a number of scientific realizations underlying that. The first is the realization which has come out in the last 15, 20 years that most thought is really non-conscious. I mean, most scientists now say that approximately 90% of what we think at any given moment is not conscious Mm. because there's so much information to process 
that we actually just don't have the bandwidth to consciously process everything that's going through. So there's a lot that's going on subterranean that we are processing, like the height of the ceiling or the artwork behind me, or the fact that I can extend my arms this way, but not that way or whatever, that you're just registering, but you aren't necessarily thinking about in a conscious way. And what we further know is that you're registering it in a way that makes a significant impact on the decisions you make, on the feelings you have, on the thoughts you have. And I can give you a whole range of examples. The one example that I sort of love just because it's so kind of surprising is a Yale professor did a study in which he got together 20 Yale students and said, okay, you guys are human resources people and you need to hire someone. And so Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you 10 resumes and you have to score them on each candidate on appropriateness. And he handed out packages of resumes on clipboards. And what he didn't tell the participants in the study is that half of the clipboards were like those really flimsy kind of awful things that you get at your local bodega. And Mm -hmm. The other half were like these big, heavy, sturdy, expensive things that you get from Staples or wherever. So when the participants handed the clipboards back in, they had scored the candidates as being more competent if they were holding a heavier clipboard. So what does that say? Makes no sense, right? You're looking at objective information, a CV or a resume, you're trying to score the appropriateness and confidence of a candidate. So who cares whether it's a heavy clipboard or a light clipboard, but competence is something that it confers a sense of seriousness on people. We equate, Mm. associate competence with seriousness. We associate seriousness with heaviness. And so people unconsciously, just as I was explaining, associated the heaviness of the weight of the object they were feeling with the competence of the candidate whose qualifications they were assessing. Mm. In the game of feeling and thinking, doesn't feeling always win? Well, I don't think that feeling and thinking are so separate. There's all sorts of really fascinating studies where the feelings that we have actually post-date the perceptions or the sensations that we've had sometimes Mm. by up to almost a full second. So you could be making a decision to walk in that direction and your body has already started walking in that direction before you're even aware enough to know that you need to make that decision. Mm. I mean, all of this is like complete inversions of the ways that we thought and understood how people work. You know, we like to think that we have all this agency (laughs) and we do have some, no question, we do have some. But my point is simply that the environment is pressing on us and pushing us in certain directions and massaging Mm. us and so on all the time. And one of the things I'm thinking about a lot with this pandemic and everybody having to shelter in place is, is it possible that people will begin to realize more how vastly important the configuration of their environments is? Mm. And I can't see how they couldn't. I can't tell you how many people have said to me, just not having to walk into the office, I'm so much more, I, you know, fill in the blank, whatever, relaxed, stressed, this, that. And 
it's not just the social component, it's the physical component of what these spaces are like. It's the acoustic properties, it's the tactile properties, it's the opportunities for visual stimulation. Okay, I'm going on and on. You asked me questions, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Well, I think what you're saying, which has to do with this sort of whole body experience, mm-hmm. this multi-sensory, tactile kind of thing, I guess how we engage in our environments has a lot to do with this sort of notion of how meaningful we we sense the space around us is, how how meaningfully it was constructed or conceived or or thought about. We're also dealing with a time now where more and more people around the world are living in cities. It's dense, it's urban. How are you thinking about nature in this context and and how nature also affects us from this sort of whole body experience? Well, it's an interesting question because much of the research that has come out in the last 20 years on the effects of environment on people has been done on nature. So we know a lot more, for example, of the effects of nature on people's stress levels, cortisol levels, heart rates. We know the effects of five minutes in nature versus the effects of 15 minutes in nature. We know there are effects both of representations of nature, like picture of nature versus actually being in nature. And we know what the difference in those effects are. So there is a vast amount of research that comes out of this field called biophilia, which simply means man's love of nature. And it comes from evolutionary psychology, really. The idea that people have evolved to need and thrive in nature. So that's one of the reasons I actually started working on the book as I did, because all this research was coming out on the effects of nature on the environment. I thought, okay, well, all of this is really nice, but you know what? Most of us don't live in nature, and most of us don't have that much access to nature, only in very controlled settings like a little urban park or this or that. And so I thought, how can we take what we know about the effects of nature on people and on their emotional and cognitive states and apply that or learn about built environments. And it turns out that there's a lot of reasons. I mean, I could say obvious things like go get yourself some house plants, right? <laughs> <laughs> because they help. They actually do. I mean, not only are they good for the air and so on, but they do diminish stress levels. <laughs> But there's a lot more to be said than that. For example, natural materials. I see, Spencer, that you have a wood floor, for example. Well, there's a study from 1916 that shows that seeing wood and using wood in your interior actually reduces cortisol levels, Mm -hmm. which means stress levels. So just using wood. Not simulating wood because wood has all these acoustical properties and tactile properties and so on that you don't get when you just put a tiny little layer over MDF, whatever. Okay, so there's materials, there's sunlight, which is increasingly recognized to be absolutely fundamental, critical to people's health, mental health and physical health, physical health for reasons of circadian rhythms. Mm. I mean, for example, there's a study that came, a book that was published last year by Sachin Panda. And I'm not that great on retaining precise numbers, but shift workers, in other words, workers who work at night and get much less daylight, die much earlier. Mm. 
than people who work a normal circadian rhythm schedule. And they have higher incidence of of mental health problems and obesity and so on and so forth. There was one fascinating study, which I love, of workers in a call center. Workers in call centers, if they were eight foot away from the window, they picked up something like 15 to 20 percent more calls per hour. Mm because some of this research takes place around work productivity. So what are the dimensions of nature? I've got materials, I've got natural light. I mean, everybody knows that natural light is so important, but I think it's important to talk a lot about it to unpack all the ways that it's important. Another reason it's important is you can tell what time of day it is if you're in a room that has natural light. So you get Mm -hmm. some sense of how the, the day is moving. Also, the look of the room changes because morning light is the temperature of morning light is different from the temperature of afternoon light. You know, shade comes on the floor at one time, light comes on the floor another time. All these things are important, again, in a kind of subconscious way that you wouldn't necessarily register, because another thing we know about people is they hate to be bored. <laughs> hate it. And particularly if you're in the same space, day after day after day, you want a space that engages you that sort of keeps you looking, that isn't the same every moment. And natural light is one of the really effective tools that designers have to keep their spaces active all day long. Do you think a lot of what we're talking about is is the, the fact that nature and the human have been in separate domains for so long? And do you think that in this moment we're able to maybe rethink our concept of what the human actually is. Yes. I think that we've been running headlong for 150, 200 years to an increasingly globalized, interconnected, and in pockets, somewhat placeless, disconnected from place kind of existence. And I say this hopefully I think that one positive outcome of what's happening now with the pandemic, but there are lots of other economic and social trends that lead up to this as well, is that there will be an increase in a sense of locality, a sense of place and the localization of place. Obviously, we all have that right now because we're stuck wherever we are. Mm -hmm. So I live in East Harlem. Here I am. Um, I'm not going anywhere. But I think it could be that these kinds of fears of future viruses and so on are going to make that kind of pervasive global networking is going to be mitigated to some extent, Mm -hmm. at least on the personal social level. Mm. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, we, we talk about these these studies and these ideas about this has an effect on us, you know, light has an effect on us, wood has an effect on it. And doesn't that all just add up to the idea that because we're of it and when we take it away from us, something's foreign, you know? Yeah. We've just been thinking about that so much, I think, in a lot of our conversations, the the rethinking of what human is and maybe what got us here is is that we were thinking of the human as such a separate domain from nature. I see what you're saying. No, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, much of some of the work that I rely on relies on evolutionary psychology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, really all I'm saying, if you wanted to put it in 
more technical terms is that humans are creatures of their habitats. Mm-hmm. That's it, right? And if we evolved in nature and now we're putting ourselves in little white boxes without a whole lot of recognition, you know, and that's the way human culture and society evolves, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Le Corbusier sort of had something right when he did those towers in the city and the city radios and said, you know, we got to get people into the sunlight and out of the dirty, horrible cities. It's just that there were all these other dimensions that he was neglecting. So now this is like a paradigmatic moment where things break apart and we see the other dimensions. Mm. I think you've described this as sort of patterned complexity, this idea that things can't be so ordered and tidy, that things need to be a range of texture, a range of materials, allowing for a sort of different experience than just something that's neatly ordered, like the Parthenon, for example, which was just this immense, really organized Mm -hmm. plan. Well, we need that too. I would (laughs) never say we don't need the Parthenon. (laughs) There's beauty in that. But there's the Erechtheon next to the Parthenon. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. One of the things that I was curious um, your perspective on is we've just experienced such immense speed and scale in building, especially in New York. And it seems that because of the changing economy, things were already happening sort of before Corona, at least on the west side of Manhattan with the slowdown of selling all these developments. Do you think that things might change moving forward out of this that can be beneficial in terms of a sort of possibly slower approach to the buildings that we've been doing in cities? That's really nice thought. (laughs) (laughs) We're trying to be rationally optimistic here. Um, You know, I don't think that real estate developers are too interested in slow, but they may have no choice. Part of what I'm saying is, and this is the reason I wrote the book that I did, is that if people begin to realize how critically important their built environments are to their health, and well-being. And by well-being, I don't mean like, ooh, I feel good in a spa. I mean like, oh, I feel like I can get up in the morning. Mm -hmm. Then they will tap into a greater demand that will eventually produce better spaces. Mm. Not to bring up Trump in the conversation, but we do want to talk about him for a moment with you. What do you think of the proposed order of making federal buildings beautiful again? She just did a double double hand palm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't I don't even know why he cares, quite frankly. And I don't get where this is coming from, but it's profoundly wrongheaded. Some of the people who talk about the kinds of things I talk about tend to conclude their lectures. They'll say some of the sorts of things that I'm saying, and then they'll say, so that's why we need historic preservation and we need to all go back to federal architecture or neo-Georgian architecture or whatever. Um, That's the wrong conclusion, partly because of what Spencer brought up, the pattern complexity idea. Style is not the point. The point is composition. And you can do compositions that work for the humans that humans are, and you can do compositions that don't. And they can be in federal style, like a lot of the buildings in D.C., which are compositions that 
don't work for the humans that humans are, or they can be modern. It depends on, again, the natural light sequencing, variety of spaces that you're using, use of materials, pattern complexity, which I can explain a bit more, and so on. So it's not like I have any love for Trump, and I've made that clear, but given how conservative he is and given the base he's playing for, I guess it makes perfect sense that you would say, let's take everything back to 1820, mm. because everybody was white then, and we didn't have to deal, and the people were enslaved, and that was a lot better. So it's not surprising, but it's discouraging that it might actually happen. Mm. <laughs> and we can only hope that it's one of the many, many horrendous things that is happening that will get reversed. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting what you bring up, which is that it's not just architecture that he's talking about when he's talking about this. And I think that that's an important point to make. No, I mean, there's a profoundly symbolic political agenda mm -hmm. that's being perpetuated that's directed at people with green cards. Right. It's a tool that was used in, you know, it's been used throughout history by totalitarian dictators. Yeah, and it's no different. So that brings us to the, to the next idea, which is, do you think design is actually relevant in the time of COVID-19? And if so, in what ways? Well, everything I've said so far, I think makes it pretty clear that yes, I think it's very relevant. <laughs> In, in what ways? I mean, I don't mind to sound glib, but in every way, I mean, these are the places we inhabit. These are our habitats. They literally mm. construct or constrain or cut off opportunities for cognitive development, for intellectual development, for emotional growth, and so on and so forth. So design is always important. Even though people like to sort of split off design and say design is for wealthy people and, you know, we'll just get a quote unquote functional building. But no, they function well or they function less well on a whole range of dimensions, which we need to recognize. And I think people's reliance on space, it's obvious, is going to change and get much more acute. Mm -hmm. Workplace design is going to totally change. Mm. You know, all those workplace design, you know, maximization engineers, they're going to be out of jobs because they're going to have to take into account this kind of new landscape. And so we're already thinking about spaces in different ways. What's social infrastructure going to look like? What is libraries going to look like? What is public transportation going to look like? So once you ask any of those questions, you're asking questions about design. Mm. How do you define good design? It's much easier for me to define bad design. <laughs> uh, how do I define good design? I think, okay, good design, I can't say this in a way that's not kind of nerdy, but I'll try. An isomorphism means a formal relationship between a person and an object. So in good design, there's an isomorphic relationship between the person's needs and desires and capabilities and the space they inhabit, mm. okay? So if I'm, let's say, like I'm a total introvert, which is kind of the case actually, that needs like super quiet environments to work, then a well-designed space for me is gonna be a space that takes into account those acoustical needs, that takes into account the fact that if I'm working in a room that's too big, I feel exposed and don't like that. 
and so on and so forth. Now, I'm giving quite individual examples, which may make you think like, how could we do that? Come on, you know, every person's a little different. Well, obviously you can't accommodate for everything, but what you can do is sort of adopt the idea of mass customization, where you design spaces that that have the right kind of materials and the right kind of light and so on, and then can be adapted for individual needs. Mm-hmm. Just like, I mean, there was an office building that I was in last year of a company in which they had four different temperature zones mm. and they crowdsourced the temperature because people would like put into their thing, I'm cold, I'm hot, I'm da 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 And so, and then if you were like one of those colder people, you would go into the space that was warmer and so on and so forth. So there's a lot more that we can be doing. Yeah, it's, it's personal, it seems. It's not only personal, but there are sort of fundamental basic things that humans need because we're humans. I mean, mm. I go into this a lot in my book. I mean, there's a huge range of metaphors and schemas that we have just by virtue of the fact that we live in the bodies that we do in the kinds of spaces mm. that we do. So that, you know, we look at axial sequences and we think that means forward and forward means progress. Or we look at high ceilings and we think that means, you know, abundant space and a kind of luxury and low ceilings is low mean kind of prison type things. We have a huge reservoir of those kind of schemas and associations that all people share. Hmm. I'm curious about how you think about memory in this context, because obviously memory is so embedded in our built world and, and how we associate with our surroundings, how we think about memories as an extension of of what's around us. How do you think this quarantine is going to sort of impact how we think about space? I mean, we'll always remember this time through the spaces we're in during it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's where I'm most hopeful, actually. You know, you have to figure most people sheltering in place or sheltering in environments in which they, to some extent, have control over what they look like, which is very important for humans, Mm -hmm. and that they have made into places they want to be. And I think just by spending so much time in places and, you know, also it's like everybody putters, right? So, okay, you've worked, you've written from eight in the morning until three in the afternoon, and then you putter around and you like move your books from one place to another, or you do this or you do that. So you're thinking about the environment, right? That's not going to go away, those moments, because one of the key factors that people have found is central to whether people like their environments or not is the degree of control they have over them. Mm. And when you're sheltering in place, that's a place where you have a maximum degree of control. Mm. And you're going to realize that that's something that you want when you go back into your space at WeWork. Right, WeWork. Does that exist still? (laughs) Yeah, I was just going to say, do you think WeWork will be there? No, I don't actually, but... (laughs) Yeah. Did you have a fundamental... you, You seem to have a response to WeWork. Did you have a fundamental issue with the idea of the sort of prescriptive value that they brought, that they kind of had an aesthetic that they placed on things? Or what was it about WeWork that you didn't feel quite right about? No, 
know, I actually thought what what WeWork was doing was really impressive. Mm. I thought it was a little, I mean, they were scaling up way too fast. Like the early spaces succeeded because they had this kind of vibe. And so they decided everybody needed just that vibe. And they multiplied it ad nauseum. And talk about a lack of hyperlocality. You know, that's that doesn't work. It's not going to work. Mm-hmm. WeWork was interesting also in the sense that they were doing a lot of research, which not that many people do on the actual effect of different spatial and aesthetic interventions on use. Mm. And we need that kind of, I mean, I really, I wanted WeWork to succeed because they were the only people out there who were hiring anthropologists and people like me and cognitive neuroscientists and so on who were conducting studies of these things. Well, all that's going to go away, but let's hope someone else picks it up. What, what um, outside of just spaces, just to get, just as a final kind of bigger picture, what are you most hopeful for right now coming out of COVID? Well, I mean, that as few people die <laughs> as possible. I mean, it's sort of a, it's a horrifying moment. It really mm. is. And, you know, it's sort of interesting I, because how many people die of the flu every year? How many people die of air pollution every year? And yet we don't shut down economies and societies because of that. But maybe we should be. You know, it's only because this thing is so contagious. What am I most hopeful of? I mean, I think this issue of locality is really critical. I think that even though we're Zooming, right? And I don't even know where you guys are. You could be in Uganda for all I know. The (laughs) idea of of really characterologically specific places as being essential to human well-being is that's something I've thought a lot about. In fact, I'm thinking of writing a book on it. And I think that it's possible that one positive effect of this horrendous situation will be that people will begin to realize how important that is. We can only hope. Thank you so much for joining us today, sure. Sarah. It was, it was really my pleasure. fantastic. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At a Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.